This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this weekend edition of Bloomberg Best... Should the Federal Reserve keep hiking? If you think about the inflation data over the next three months, the next six months, it's probably going to come in essentially where it was going to come in before we had the issues in the banking sectors. The struggle to shake banking problems. We still are missing from the whole range of cast of characters who were really responsible here. Alibaba's breakup sparks joy among investors. The initial response has been extremely positive. We do believe that if you break the pieces up, the sum of the parts are bigger than the whole. And the insanity of this year's March Madness. This has probably been the maddest March ever. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's best stories of the week. Powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. And we just had a huge amount of debate this past week about what the Federal Reserve should do. And Denise Boston Fed President Susan Collins says the Fed needs to keep raising interest rates. Inflation does remain too high. Recent indicators reinforce my view that there is more work to do to bring inflation down to the 2% target that we associate with price stability. And Collins speaking there at the annual National Association for Business Economics, or NABE, conference in Washington. But former U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin says the Fed could lay off the hikes very soon. The Fed should be close to done because these interest rates are slowing the economy. And Mnuchin speaking there at the FII's conference in Miami. And Denise Vince Reinhardt, chief economist over at Dreyfus and Mellon, tells Bloomberg's Lisa Abramovitz, the Fed needs to stay smart here. Most times when the world gets more uncertain, like now, uh, you would say still take your best shot and aim for the middle of the wider range. And I think that's what they're doing. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't characterize it as under or over tightening. I think it's appropriate now they move gradually and be willing to stop if some of that incremental evidence suggests the economy's turning. And that's what they seem to be willing to do. That was the whole idea of dropping ongoing further increases. That was the whole idea of uh, Chair Powell being so tentative about the outlook. I think they got a firm. Uh, However, I I hope uh, they've got the wisdom to stop if the evidence suggests that they should. How will we look back on the tipping point of Fed credibility, not only with respect to policy, but also with respect to supervision of the banking system? So I think if if you're asking, the question, let's let's take the satellite view and look down. Uh, the big issue is going to be lower for long. And it's going to be a theme running through the macro economy and the banking sector. Keeping rates low for too long, let inflation move up and set up an enormous macroeconomic problem. Keeping rates too uh, low for too long made banks complacent worsened a mismatch that's natural on bank balance sheets and led to some of the stresses uh, we've seen now. Supervision is a layer on top. Uh, and uh, could we supervise, regulate and supervise banks better? Yes. Could we write better banking laws? Um, almost certainly. But those are weak points in a system that gets stress test 
by a macro imbalance, and the macro imbalance was lower for longer. So I'd focus on the on the big picture. Okay, so that's Vince Reinhardt, chief economist over at Dreyfus and Mellon with Bloomberg's Lisa Abramowitz. But Ed, what about the overall economic environment? Right, Denise. But Peter Schur, director and head of macro strategy at Academy Securities, says we're still in an overall deflationary environment. You know, I've been in the camp that we are generally headed towards deflate deflation, especially in the goods camp, and we had four or five solid months, right, from September of last year till January of this year, where you saw nothing but deflation. We saw the data bounce a little bit. Right now, you look at inventories, they're creeping higher again. You start looking at shipments and freight, they're going lower. So I think on the good side of things, we're still in an overall deflationary environment. So I think that pulls down. I think housing is pulling down. Healthcare is something to watch. But yes, I think we have overreacted. We have to give this more time. And as these companies are pulling back on their jobs, I think that just filters through what we've lost sight of, I think, is that there is this long and lag effect, and we're not giving it time. The problem is, as market participants, we don't have that time. We're moving so quickly now, you have to be right ahead of the time. Chur also says he is eyeing the banking crisis and the way depositors may keep moving funds out of banks, Ed, because they can get higher yield elsewhere in the U.S. right now. And Andrew Hollenhorst, chief U.S. economist at Citi, is among those who say the Fed will still keep hiking. Here he is with Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. It, it could really take some time before you see the slowdown coming in and affecting growth data, um, and especially inflation data. If you think about the inflation data over the next three months, the next six months, it's probably going to come in essentially where it was going to come in before we had the issues in the banking sector. So they could really be waiting to see how this is going to trickle through and flow through the economy. Um, if you go back to where we were just a couple months ago, remember we'd had some months of softer core inflation prints, the Fed was sounding a bit more dovish. Well, then you basically had one month of data, you had a strong January, and you had some revisions to the prior inflation data, and all of a sudden you had a more hawkish Fed. So we're trying to keep that in mind when we think about the Fed here, that you know the, the volatility that we saw in two-year yields over the last couple of weeks, it makes some sense if you think that they were really moving between these two extremes, where it could be financial stability, that would be more dovish, or it could be price stability. And I, I think that really does mean that policy rates still need to get above five and a half percent. I love getting your notes. Over the past two weeks, I have loved it even more because I feel this exasperation as people basically say rate cuts, everything is over. And you're just like, stop it, guys, please stop it. Things are still hot. We still have an inflation problem. What kind of feedback do you get every time you pull one of these out? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. I, I think we actually get a lot of resonance on this idea that inflation is still strong and underlying inflation is still strong. And where there's more of a question from clients is, does the Fed have the ability to respond to that strong inflation? And do they have the willingness to do it? Which, which is a really important question for the Fed, and I think a, a question that the Fed should be aware people are asking. Um, because one of the key things you want to do as a central bank is to provide that confidence that you have resolved to fight against higher inflation. I think the market really got there um, a month ago or so. We had two-year yields above 5%. Um, now there are new questions about whether the Fed is going to essentially have to give a little bit on the price stability mandate to focus on the financial stability mandate, um, that could be problematic if we start to view central banks as unwilling to move against inflation. How high could 10-year yields go 
if the Fed does pause, despite hotter than expected CPI, PCE, all of the data indicators that we had been watching before the financial stability questions? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, we've been thinking about interest rates rising because policy rates are rising, but there's this other scenario where policy rates could actually stay lower and you could start to get longer term rates rising. I think Fed officials are feeling pretty confident about that right now because if you look at longer term expectations of inflation in the market, five-year forward, five-year inflation break-evens, um, well, those have stayed relatively stable, relatively consistent with mandate consistent policy levels. But th I think that's what they'll be watching. Um, if that starts gliding up, if you start seeing higher 10-year yields because the Fed is being dovish, um, that would be a real concern for Fed officials. We've said a few times they're in the risk management business. May 3rd, they meet, decide. Are they going to have enough information to make the call to hike by the time we get to May 3rd? I, I think it's going to be a difficult meeting. Um, I think they, they will have enough information to continue hiking at that meeting. The question is, what guidance are they giving beyond that? And we saw what happened with the, the dots at the last meeting. Those dots that indicate where policy rates should be at the end of the year, I think there's no question they were going to move up at that meeting until you had the issue in the banking sector. So now the question we're asking about May is, well, they don't have to update those dots, but they have to give us some indication of, will there be further rate hikes or will there not be further rate hikes? I don't know that you can do again what central banks did a week or two weeks ago. If you remember the ECB hiking by 50 basis points and basically saying, we can't tell you where we go from here. I think in May, at that time, there'll be enough time to view the data, understand what's going on with financial stability, give some guidance. Will there be further rate hikes or will there not be further rate hikes? Uh, they'll have to make a decision. Well, the that. new line, I think, is additional policy firming. Additional policy firming, uh, right? whatever, That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Whatever that means. <laughs> I'm sure they spent a long time coming up with that. Clearly, they believe that what's developed in the banking system is a substitute for rate hikes. And to your point about the dot plot, I think we can probably agree around the table that if we got the dot plot three weeks ago, that was going from 5.1 to 5.60. So let's say they believe the developments of the last couple of weeks are worth about 50 basis points. I've got no idea how much conviction they've got behind that view or whether that really is their view, but I think we can read between the lines. Andrew, how on earth do you make an estimate as to how much the tightening of lending standards may develop off the back of the story the last couple of weeks and how that equates with a level in Fed funds. Yeah, I think it's really, really difficult. And, and I, I, I worry a little bit about these statements that the tightening and credit conditions is going to substitute for exactly 25 or exactly 50 basis point of rate hikes. Um, because you're making an assumption first about how policy rates transmit through to financial conditions broadly, and then how financial conditions broadly transmit through to the real economy. And that was Andrew Hollenhorst, Chief U.S. Economist at City, with our Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. And coming up, the madness of March Madness and thoughts about investing with investor and Celtics co-owner Steve Paliuka. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Denise, of course, we're at the peak of March Madness this weekend as we move into April. Yeah, we sure are. And this year's upset insanity added an extra element, Ed, didn't it really, of fun, but also definitely some frayed nerves, especially for those betting on games. Oh, yeah. Not all the brackets are for betting and making money. And some are for fun and some are for 
charity. And we had a chance to hear from Steve Paliuka, Bain Capital Senior Advisor, and also Boston Celtics co-owner and owner of some other teams as well about all that. And now Paliuka talks about his sports teams and investing in this stock market environment with all the upsets on Wall Street as well. Yeah, he sees some opportunities in tech. And here's Bloomberg's Lisa Abramowitz and Jonathan Farrow with Paliuka in our New York studio. Brackets for a cause. It's a great tradition here at Bloomberg as well to put this together. March Madness happens every year. I can't follow it, but it's college basketball and everyone gets very excited. And you've done pretty well this year. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, uh, it's, a, it's a great group and, and uh, this has probably been the maddest March ever. The last time I tried to do this, I think I was out after the first couple of days. It was like bracket done. I can't even fill in all the boxes. What's your charity? Um, my charity is the Reform Alliance. Okay, what do they do, Steve? Uh, they're an organization set up by uh, Bob Kraft and Michael Rubin to uh, basically help help prisoners get out get jobs when they get out of prison. Uh, we have a huge prison reform situation in this country. We've got to we've got to really help people get out of that cycle, and, and that's an organization nationally that's been set up to do there. And, and uh, I have a double bonus this year in, in that my son actually uh, left his job and he works for the Reform Alliance. You know, trying, oh, wow. to, trying to help them. So they should get some money. Go Celtics, Go Celtics. another one. And Go for, Atalanta. For, Forza, at, Forza Atalanta. Forza Atalanta. Where does this end? Are you done now? You've got enough sports teams? You, know, you never know. I'm, I'm really enjoying the ones that we have right now, and uh, they're winning. You have a life that a lot of people would envy. I'm wondering, there has been a lot of interest in getting into the professional sports game for quite a while. We talked about that during some of the heydays of low interest rates. Have you found that change as it becomes more difficult to access capital for a number of individuals, perhaps not yourself? Well, it really has changed. Uh, you know, I think when, when we uh, did the Celtics purchase, it was something like $360 million, and the average NBA club is worth you know, 3 to $4 billion now. Um, so it's been, it's been a huge increase. But actually, the markets have responded. There are firms that invest in, in, uh, in sports franchises specifically, and, uh, and people put together consortiums to get liquidity. But do you feel like there is less interest, that people now are sort of focused more on the nuts and bolts of existence <laughs> rather than, uh, you know, just the, the sport of it because there is perhaps other opportunity, but also because they are constrained? No, I, I think it's, it's remained the same. It's, it's a highly competitive, uh, fun environment. Um, in, in Boston, uh, you know, number one sports town in, in the country, uh, it's just a, it's just a pleasure, and and sports has kind of transcended um, society, and 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 the teams are really doing a lot of good in the community. NBA cares, for example, uh, Boston Celtics, uh, United for Social Justice, they're fantastic organizations that go out and help the community. So it's, it's really become intertwined. Can we discuss exits? You're clearly a fan. How do you think about a potential exit when you have a stake? in a sporting organization you see the appreciation in the overall league i'm thinking about the glazers at man united i'm thinking about john henry over at over at liverpool they're clearly looking at these levels and thinking that maybe now is the time to exit how do you think about that well we, our philosophy is to, family office is just a long-term hold it's a great asset for a long-term hold um so you know i, I would hope to go to the grave uh, owning owning these assets myself um, hopefully, hopefully, quite a while from now. But, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, really, long-term hold. I think they're long-term hold opportunities. And uh, uh, now the, the appreciation has been so much. People have got in early that want to get cash. There's a there's a, a big market out there of individuals that want to get involved in sports teams, and so they'll be successful doing that. We're seeing very high valuations right now um, because of the interest in it, and because of the growing television revenues and the whole television landscape changing now. As uh, as we, we go from bundling to unbundling, back to bundling again, um, 
and 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 sports programming is the one solid thing in there. People still will tune in and watch that live, so it's become very valuable to all these digital properties and and the networks. And news as well, Steve. Not just sport. Just throwing that out there. It's sports and news, news. and sports. I'm, of I'm course, sorry. I'm I, should have, I should have put news first. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Thanks for that. <laughs> now that's sport. That's sporting organisations across basketball, football. Take your pick. Let's talk about the broader economy right now. If you've got money to put to work at the moment, how easy is it? To transact, there's still plenty of opportunity out there. Um, there's a growing biotech sector in the United States, in Boston, San Francisco. Um, there's still technology companies that are, that are doing well. And this this period reminds me of coming off of the the, the the kind of tech crash in '99. We had a very overvalued situation in tech, uh, and then and then I remember in those days, I would fly out to California, and someone would give me a term sheet, and say you have two days to decide. You know, this company's worth a hundred. 100 million it has no sales but it's a great idea to put on the internet and I was, I was incredulous I mean I literally had 17 or 18 of these meetings and, and I, I was I was disoriented and and we actually I think I think the only year Bain Capital didn't make a major investment was 1999 thank goodness and then that all crashed down in April um, but do you feel like we've gotten the washout that eventually you got in 1999 heading into 2000 or do you feel like this still is a tenuous moment where valuations haven't found their floor in any way i would say it's still tenuous um and people are going back to the basics back to fundamentals looking at cash flow looking at uh, at can the company be profitable you can't have a thousand year time frame anymore when interest rates are have gone from you know next to zero to five and a half percent for for a t-bill um and you know, most of my career, I think three quarters of my career, T bills were at, at four to five percent the vast majority of the time. So, we really got trapped in this easy money period for the last ten or twelve years, and now the reckoning has come. One thing that you're so wonderful about is you've got an incredible view into so many smaller companies and how they're accessing credit. We've been talking a lot about the potential for a restriction in credit really weakening the profile of these companies. Have you seen any evidence of that accelerating, especially? over the past couple of months. It's, it's definitely an issue that, that we, we've invested in, in about 40 or 50 uh, venture companies in my family office, and many of them need more capital because the banks are, are, are with the Silicon Valley situation, they're reining in and making sure these companies have more capital to pay back those loans. Um, so the market's reacting, there is capital out there, but I think that's something to watch for sure. Stephen Pagliuca, Bain Capital Senior Advisor and also Boston Celtics co-owner with Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. And Ed, for the second year in a row, star players in this year's March Madness are cashing in on some name, image, and likeness, or NIL deals. Lucky few are earning seven figures and up on this. Yeah, apparently these opportunities, Denise, though, have not come easily to everyone, especially women. More on that part of the story from Carly Wana in this Bloomberg Quick Take. Male college basketball players make twice as much as their female counterparts. A lot of the gender gap can be attributed to so-called NIL collectives. In many cases, rich donors and alumni establish these funds to pool money from businesses and fans, then dole out that cash to a school's athletes. According to data collected from Open Doors, most of the men's earnings edge comes from football, which by itself accounted for 55.1% of NIL deals. But even when you take football players out of it, men take in roughly 60% of the compensation. However, when you exclude the money being donated from NIL collectives, male and female basketball players make roughly the same from traditional marketing endorsements. The CEO of Open Doors told me that when it comes to brand marketers, the women basketball players on this list stand out in terms of their marketability. 
which makes sense when you look at social media data. Women tend to have higher engagement levels, and of the players competing in the tournament, eight out of the ten most followed on Instagram are women. So, female athletes prove to be marketable, but the NIL groups are funneling more money into men's sports than women's sports. In January, the Drake Group submitted a letter to the U.S. Department of Education calling for increased oversight of NIL activity, specifically how deals, including funds from collectives, relate to Title IX. And that was Bloomberg's Carly Wana reporting. And coming up... Why Alibaba's breakup could be bullish for global tech. You're listening to Bloomberg Best. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130 to Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991 to Boston. Bloomberg 1061 to San Francisco. Bloomberg 960 to the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Ed, Alibaba this week announced it's breaking up its $220 billion empire. And here's chair and CEO of the e-commerce giant and conglomerate, Daniel Chong. We need to become more entrepreneurial and unleash uh, more ownership across all of those uh, different businesses. And Chong also says uh, that Alibaba is fully confident the new structure will, quote, enhance value of the company as a whole. And Bloomberg's Stephen Engel tells Bloomberg's Yvonne Mann he was surprised at the lack of detail in Alibaba's press conference. One thing that stood out to me at the beginning of this, I was just sort of expecting the six divisional heads uh, of the baby babas to be on this call. Uh, but just, just Daniel Zhang, who is the chairman and CEO, as well as the CFO, Toby Xu, were on the call. Uh, Daniel will be the head of the new cloud intelligence division, but the other five heads uh, were not on the call. We do know that it's going to be Jiang Fan, head of the global digital business. We know Trudy Dai will be of the e-commerce shopping division. Local services will be Yufang Fu, uh, as well as the Tainao Logistics will be the existing head, William Lin, and Fan Lu Yuan, uh, head of the digital media and entertainment. None of them were on this call to get to flesh out some of the details, how they're going to run a standalone business with the synergies, of course, under this basically a holding company, Alibaba holding company, as a more of a capital-based company rather than operating these individual units. Uh, Let me just run through the key takeaways. Uh, The restructuring already is underway, according to Daniel Zhang, and he says this has been in the works for a couple of years. Not surprising because the antitrust uh, regulation uh, and the the scuppering of the anti-IPO in November, that was two and a half years ago, so they were probably been working on that over that time frame. It's essential, he says, to make Alibaba more agile. They will decide on a case-by-case basis whether when and how much control to seed of its units in its units. Each unit will operate and seek funding independently. We knew that with the statement coming from Daniel Jong. He expects to maintain synergies across the group thanks to strong and established relationships. Those synergies are, quote, very stable, according to Daniel Jong. All units are already on its cloud business. This synergy will remain at least. You mentioned synergy, so they, they kind of want to break up the businesses, but then they still want synergies among that. Is that a bit, I don't know, counterintuitive, or how, how does that go? Well, work? they kind of clash yeah. in the opposite direction, right? Or in this, in, in 
they clash. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Because they're breaking up, but they also want to maintain those synergies. Of course they want to maintain those synergies. The reason why they had, quote-unquote, monopoly is because they had synergies and they shared data, they shared referrals across all those divisions uh, to the detriment of upstarts in those various industries. So they're going to talk up those synergies. It's just a matter of uh, individual businesses, how they're going to do that while still maintaining you know, sort of autonomy. And at this historic overhaul that Stephen Engel is just talking about there with Yvonne Mann is absolutely huge. Now, Duncan Clark, Denise, founder and chairman at BDA, tells Bloomberg's Heidi Stroud-Watts that his co-founder, Jack Ma, who may have supported the breakup, moves on from Alibaba. It's a positive for investors, and Jack Ma's future is in question. You know, it's an iconic company. It's a symbol of some fresh capital coming into some of these companies, some some new transactions, obviously, which will help the moribund sort of IPO pipeline. I agree, it's going to take time, but it's uh, finally a positive signal for the company and for the markets. Duncan, did they have a choice? I mean, was this about unlocking value or is this about something some, something that they had to do proactively to survive? It's a bit of both, clearly. I mean, um, if the logic or the narrative was this company was too big, particularly Ant, um, you know, then this is very helpful to, you know, showcase to the broader public and, you know, that the government is serious about not having too much concentration. Um, but, you know, I think it's more, uh, you know, I think it's uh, under Li Chang, the new prime minister, who don't forget was uh, governor of Zhejiang province when Alibaba was in, in its growth phase. Um, this is important for the new prime minister as well to showcase that growth really matters now. We've all seen the numbers. Uh, declining exports, declining imports, weak consumer sentiment. So I think there, you know, the government, this new government, new administration clearly wants to move forward. Uh, we just had the China Development Forum in Beijing, Boao Forum in Hainan. So the, the agenda now is, is fixed on growth. It's not always consistent. We see moves that scare the markets and, you know, frankly, scare individuals here. But I think, you know, we, we do see a more pro-growth um, kind of narrative that is emerging now. I might be reading too much into it, but is it a coincidence to you that this disclosure was made at the same time that we see Jack Ma finally re-emerging and perhaps back more in the spotlight? Yeah, it remains to be seen. I don't think it's a coincidence. I think this was you know, clearly helpful. Uh, you know, again, if you look at what Jack Ma did when he was in, in Hangzhou, was you know, again talking about education, uh, I think you know, uh, AI, etc. So he's only been allowed to speak about basically rural, you know, um, rural education and agriculture, sort of Jack and the Beanstalk kind of shtick he's had for a couple of years. But basically, you know, will he be allowed to speak about more topics? That would be interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, you know, would he want to really? Does he want to be effectively seen as a mouthpiece for a new government policy? I don't think so either. So probably we won't hear as much as him from before. We may see him more. Um, and particularly now around this, you know, the sense of moving on that might be helpful to the government um, in, in general to, to show this pro-growth agenda. But Clark also does say, Ed, that China still has other challenges like labor shortages and economic growth. And in his meantime, Mark Conan, CIO at AIA Group, tells Bloomberg's Rashad Salamat, Nivan Mann, Alibaba's plan to regroup into six units is a major step forward for investors. When you see a big group like this, which is, it's not transparent, where there's some real governance issues, it's not nimble enough to deal with regulatory change. Now what you're seeing is with this breakup, this one plus six plus N, you're going to see a lot more transparency, you're going to see a lot more scrutiny, you're going to see a lot more accountability. This has to be good news for investors. How do you see this? Does this prompt some sort of re-rating when it comes to the tech space in China now that, you know, maybe this could spur other spinoffs? 
the like here too. So it depends on how others react to this, the, these changes and whether or not it does permeate through the, through the whole sector. But certainly as the bellwether, as the leader, it's, it bodes very well. And I think investors are going are to be very enthusiastic. The initial response has been extremely positive. We do believe that if you break the pieces up, the sum of the parts are bigger than the whole. But maybe the 70% drop that we saw from the, from the peak uh, is a different story. But certainly from where we are today, this creates a lot of value for shareholders. It leads to, you know, it, it provides leadership in the sector. And I think, therefore, going forward, there'll be a lot more um, collaboration, a lot more transparency in terms of how policy changes can affect the industry. Mark, how does it then really create leadership in the sector? I mean, surely companies such as Tencent will be very wary of this. I mean, they don't really want to see themselves broken up, some of them at least here. So, you know, it's a bit of perhaps uh, a curious said, a good in parts. Well, I think the, from an investor's point of view, um, the, the key issue is that the, the uncertainty that the policy changes had uh, in terms of really thinking through where the value was going to come from going forward, created a, a, a sort of cloud, if you like, uh, in terms of how capital was going to be allocated. What this does is create that, as I say, that, that transparency and better governance. So from an investor's point of view, that is very good news. Clearly, um, from, from a margin point of view, if you're operating in a monopoly with less transparency, um, you, can, you can do a lot more and you can create a lot more value in theory. But if you're in an environment where there's, there's rapid change, where there's policy uncertainty, that works against you. And I think we've reached that point with the tech sector in mainland China. And this has to happen. We saw it years and years ago when I was starting off at the beginning of my career. Uh, we saw it in the US in a number of sectors, not least telcos uh, and other technology type uh, related uh, sectors. This has to happen. You have to have the transparency. You have to have better governance. You have to be more nimble. So, so Mark, you know, this is slightly an esoteric point, uh, I, a question I want to really ask you, and that is, how does it fit into the whole idea of common prosperity a move such as this? I mean, is this in any way an ideologically driven uh, kind of agenda being played out with regards to Alibaba, and then if that goes on further from this, or is it just perhaps sheer pragmatism? Well, I would say it's in the, in the camp of pragmatism and it's also in the camp of moving forward um, in the spirit of better governance mm. uh, and creating more, more visibility uh, for investors. And I think that's what best practice is all about. Uh, I don't think it's inconsistent with any top-down policy. In some ways, it's well aligned with top-down policy. But first and foremost, the way we would see this, it's, it's all about creating value and visibility for shareholders. And that was Mark Conan, CIO at AIA Group, with Bloomberg's Rashad Salamat and Yvonne Mann. And coming up... What next as the banking crisis continues to unfold? You're listening to Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. The banking crisis continues to unfold. Yeah, it sure does. And Michael Barr, Ed, Vice Chair for Supervision at the Federal Reserve, well, he spent some time this week pointing fingers over the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. I think that anytime you have a bank failure like this, uh, bank management clearly failed, supervisors failed, and, and our regulatory system failed. So we're looking at all of that. Barr testifying there at a House Financial Services Committee hearing. 
And uh, the Biden administration, meantime, is calling on regulators to tighten rules on mid-sized banks. That's right, Denise. The White House is calling for federal banking agencies and the Treasury Department to tighten rules. And it's worth noting, Ed, that none of these measures would require congressional approval, so we could see these unfold. Right, Denise. And the White House also backing calls for community banks to not have to pitch in for the cost of replenishing the deposit insurance fund used to backstop SVB and Signature Bank failures. That's right, Ed. And Maya Rodriguez Valadares, Managing Principal at MRV Associates. Well, she tells Bloomberg's Lisa Abramowitz and Jonathan Farrow, we are not going to shake the problems triggered by SVB and Signature Banks and others that easily. History matters. And this is what happens when we have such a significant decline in history majors, uh, because people forget things. They forget that basic interest rate risk management and liquidity measures are at the heart of being a bank. So there's certainly going to be some changes in terms of supervisory and on-site examination processes. But there's still a lot we don't know. Where is Greg Where is Greg Becker? He needs to be there. He is, at the end of the day, where the buck stops. Where were the board members? We haven't heard from any of them. They're the ones that are supposed to provide oversight. It's not the Fed or the California regulators that run the bank. So we still are missing from the whole range of cast of characters who were really responsible here. In the meantime, the bill we've heard is $23 billion that the FDIC incurred. It is not taxpayer-funded bailout. It is J.P. Morgan-funded bailout. How much is there going to be some sort of consequence to the major banks having a special assessment that leaves the FDIC whole? Right. And I can't imagine that J.P. Morgan, Citibank, all of the globally systemically important banks in this country are happy about this. Uh, They are not the problem. Uh, They're very, very liquid. They're very well capitalized. And they certainly don't have concentrations of deposits the way that SBB did. And then the other regional banks are certainly going to take a hit. I don't believe the community banks will. I think there is absolutely no political will on either side of the aisle to hit the community banks. But at the end of the day, it's going to be the American consumer who is going to take a hit. Because eventually, when premium rise for banks, eventually it gets passed on to depositors. So this is this is not going to be any kind of free lunch for the regular ordinary American who had nothing to do with SVB's horrible mismanagement. Mario, you know how this works. One week later, an equity market rally later, and the questions, the urgency just kind of dissipates. We've seen that over the last week. Mario, I mentioned this with Lisa a few times. Last week, the big question was, do we need legislative to change right now? What do we need to change? What do we need to do like in the next 24 hours? What do we need to change? I think what we need to change is to make sure that regulators, both statewide and at a federal level, are empowered to do their job. You need to remove heads of banks from being at the district banks. So try to remove those conflicts of interest. And you really need to take this. You need to change the structure. You need to empower both offsite and onsite examiners to do their job. The problem is that when any one of them steps up and tries to tell the truth, Right. There's no incentive to do that. And you do need to make sure that those banks that are 100 billion and more are properly regulated and supervised. You do need to do away with a Trump rule, EGRR CPA, that de-designated or changed the definition as to what is a systemically important bank. Because those regional banks, by definition, are very concentrated and they are very important in those regions. And hopefully this time around, politicians on both sides of the aisle have learned the importance 
of not watering down those regulations. Myra Rodriguez Valadares, managing principal at MRV Associates, with Bloomberg's Lisa Abramowitz and Jonathan Farrow. And that is it for this edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. This is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. <laughs> 